the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, 54 days to Election Day. Well, the big news story, of course, are the fires burning all across the states of Oregon and southwest Washington. We'll bring you up to date on that. Uh, throughout the program. Also want to let you know in the uh, course of today's program, first hour, we'll share a classic interview with Meg Wilson. She's the author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. So that's coming up in the first hour of today's program. Well, the top news story, or perhaps stories, some of the headlines, fires burning near Lincoln City, scorched 2,400 acres, believed caused by human activity, people fleeing Lincoln City. Arson investigation underway, where human remains found at Almeda fire in Ashland, according to the fire chief there, and over 200 buildings damaged or destroyed in Clackamas County wildfires, hundreds more threatened. Residents flee. Fires flare across Oregon throughout the day of uh, Wednesday and Thursday. High temperatures, strong winds contributing to that problem. Well, all of Clackamas County is currently under level one, two, or three evacuation orders. Firefighters are battling four active major wildfires. Thousands of homes have been evacuated. Uh, County officials have declared a state of emergency in several active wildfires in the county, led to uh, which led to evacuations. All of the county is under some level of evacuation. At least 30,000 people were alerted by officials to leave their homes immediately. Officials said uh, last night that people living anywhere in the county, not explicitly under the level two or level three evacuation, are under a level one evacuation order, which means be ready. Everyone needs to be ready for evacuation, even if you're in an urban area. That's a quote from the Director of Disaster Management for Clackamas County, Nancy Bush. Around 9.30 p.m., the Sheriff's Office announced Level 3 evacuations would expand to include all of Eden Road west uh, to South Harding Road, again in Clackamas County. Around 8 p.m. last night, county officials said the Level 3 evacuation area had expanded to a small area west of Beaver Creek Road, which includes all of South Guard Road, also Unger Road to the first part of Windy City. Well, county officials on Wednesday afternoon updated the list of evacuation check-in sites and provided a link that shows which sites are open, which are closed, and which are full. Just after 1 p.m., the sheriff's office announced that the city of Estacado is under a level three evacuation order due to the Riverside Fire. Deputies were going door-to-door to get people out of their homes. The Riverside Fire in Mount Hood National Forest was continuing to grow and push westward down Highway 224. The fire moved 17 miles on Tuesday, by Wednesday evening, it had grown to 112,000 acres. Uh, Wednesday night, uh, county officials said the Level 3 evacuation area had expanded to a small area west of Beaver Creek Road, which includes all of South Guard Road and Unger, uh, to the first part of Windy City. The area from Eden Road and west to South Harding Road was also added. Well, the three other major wildfires in the county are Dowdy, uh, Unger, and Wilhot. Well, Clackamas County fire officials said the fires were multiplying quickly throughout the week because the wind kept picking up embers from existing fires and carrying them to nearby areas where they would start a new spot fire. 
Well, on Tuesday night, county officials reported a fire near Highway 213 and South Spangler Road around 10.30 p.m. By 11.30 p.m., ODOT had blocked the highway uh, at um, Karras Road and Union Hall Road and notified people in the area to leave. At 3.04 a.m. on Wednesday, Clackamas Fire tweeted that crews contained the fire and were putting out hot spots. The fire started when a motorhome caught on fire, spread to a nearby house and about 10 acres of bush. Two homes burned down. Several other homes were evacuated, but those evacuees have now returned. No injuries in that case were reported. Well, thousands have evacuated across the state. At least three have been killed as the Oregon wildfires are burning over 800 square miles and counting. They continue to burn throughout the state uh, today, covering over 800 square miles, forcing thousands of people to flee their homes. Damage has been widespread and at least three people have been killed. As many as 3,000 firefighters are battling the blazes, some official firefighters, some volunteers, which numbered nearly 50 on Wednesday and are affecting those living in or near all of the state's major population centers along Interstate 5 from Medford to Portland. Governor Brown has uh, declared a statewide emergency and said Oregon will likely experience the greatest loss of property and lives from wildfires in its history. Governor Brown has also said the state is experiencing its most extreme fire conditions in three decades. Dry conditions, low relative humidity are widespread uh, throughout the Willamette Valley and the Portland metro area. Air quality is poor in many places and power outages abound. Uh, In Marion County, the Beachy Creek and Lion's Head fires, which together cover about 291,000 acres, are two of the state's largest blazes. Residents of Gates, a city of about 500 near the border of Marion and Lynn counties, said their hometown was all but destroyed. The town's schools, as well as the mayor's house, were leveled. Mill City, Mahama, Lyons, and Detroit are among the areas that have also seen significant damage. These, of course, are fellow Oregonians, our neighbors. A Marion County family has also reported the fire's first fatality, a boy and his grandmother. Fire officials said that in the Beachy Creek fire alone, over 9,760 structures are under level three, which is go now evacuations. Residents of another nearly 12,000 homes are under level two, uh, get set evacuation orders. The Beachy Fire Blaze it was previously referred to as the Santiam Fire. So it's uh, the, these are not two different events. These are the same event. In Clackamas County, over 200 homes and other buildings have been damaged or destroyed. Hundreds more are threatened by four active wildfires raging in Clackamas County. The uh, county announced on Wednesday evening that 16 houses had been lost in the fire so far and an additional 211 other structures, including mobile homes, barns, storage facilities, and other buildings had been damaged or destroyed. More than 940 other homes and structures within the county remained threatened by the fires. A firefighter suffered an unspecified minor injury, but no one has died or otherwise been hurt in the fires, according to county officials in that area. Well, the county is tracking four major fires. The Riverside Fire, which moved within uh, two miles of Estacada on Wednesday. Estacada now on a, a level three, go now. And Dowdy Road Fire, also near Estacada. The Unger uh, Road Fire in the Colton area and the Wilhout Fire in the Malala area. The largest of the fires, the Riverside, uh, which started near Riverside Campground along the Clackamas River, had grown to 112,000 acres by last night. The other three fires had burned through a combined 3,450 acres as of Wednesday night, according to the county. The entire county is under the some level of evacuation warning from one to three, three being, of course, go now. 
in uh, Jackson County, thousands have been told to evacuate in southern Oregon as strong winds fed the Almeda fire, which uh, carved a path of destruction through the towns of Talent and Phoenix, which are, according to some, no more. The fire also edged into the southern part of Medford on Wednesday. The blaze is being investigated as an arson after human remains were discovered in Ashland, according to the city police chief. Arson investigators are looking into the nature of the death of the person found there. The Federal Emergency Management Agency has also authorized the use of federal funds for firefighting costs for the fire. Uh, fires, which uh, started on Tuesday, have burned about 600 homes and more than 3,000 acres of private land at the time the state requested the federal funds. 600 homes. Another 35,000 homes were threatened in and around the uh, community of Ashland, Talent, and Phoenix, and the city of Medford. The fire also threatened Interstate 5, Highway 99, schools, a fire station, parks, small businesses, and transmission and communication lines in that area. The mayor of Phoenix, Chris uh, Luz, said his town with roughly 4,650 people just south of the Jackson County seat was decimated. Sandra Spellesty, the city manager of Talent, with a population of 6,465, also said she was breath. Uh, she saw breathtaking destruction as she toured her community. Oregonians um, are struggling, and I expect we'll have opportunities in the very near future to support their efforts to try to recover. We also need to remember those firefighters who are some are being paid, others are not. They're volunteers uh, serving our community to try to extinguish these fires that have already cost Oregonians so much. So keep them in your prayers. Well, air quality in Portland and parts of Oregon is worse than in Beijing or Mexico City due to the wildfire smoke. My mother and I usually spend our evenings uh, sitting outside at some point in our backyard. And I have to admit, I was struggling with the smoke in the air. It wasn't immediately um, obvious to us. The sky, in fact, didn't reflect there was smoke in the air. But after sitting out for a short period of time, it became obvious that um, there is smoke in the air. And that has uh, lowered our air quality rather significantly. We'll talk more about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up for our next couple of segments, we'll have a conversation with Meg Wilson, author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. The book is published by Craigle. Well, as smoky haze continue to blanket many parts of uh, Oregon Um, elevating air quality to unhealthy or downright dangerous levels due to the state's wildfires. And there are plenty of them. Even the Portland area, which hasn't uh, been hit as hard as regions to the south, registered worse air quality than the high population metropolises of Beijing, Mumbai, and Mexico City. I've been in all three, and that's not a good thing, which are known for pollution um, despite their efforts to rein it in. Well, by this morning, Portland's air overall had deteriorated to a 160 on the air quality index, according to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency's monitoring website. And with wildfires burning across the West Coast, Seattle's registered at 141, San Francisco 177. Uh, Levels above 150 are deemed unhealthy for everyone. And again, we're at 160 here in the Portland metro area. Air quality is varied across the greater Portland area, with some pockets registering below 100, which is in the moderate range. Nonetheless, a yellowish, almost twilight tone cast itself over areas affected by only moderate smoke. Skies darkened significantly in areas inundated by smoke. The haze was making visibility difficult in some regions, and cars were driving with headlights even uh, hours after sunrise. 
Well, health experts advise residents with asthma or heart or lung disease, as well as children and the elderly, to stay indoors and avoid strenuous activity. Even healthy adults should consider spending more time indoors and limiting exercise, according to experts. So now you have an official excuse not to uh, to exercise and to remain indoors. I'm thinking about James, who is uh, by his own description and indoor pet. The air quality index shows the amount of microscopic particles smaller than 2.5 micrometers in diameter per cubic meter of air. These particulates are so tiny that they can be in, embed themselves into the lungs, even entering the bloodstream um, where they can do further harm. Now, common side effects of inhaling these tarny, uh, tiny particulates are eye irritation, sore throat, runny nose, um, mucus, wheezy uh, breathing, and headaches. Air quality levels over 150, or again, Portland at 160, are unhealthy, and levels at 3 to 500 are considered hazardous. But smokables in some areas of Oregon were off the charts due to their proximity to the nearly 50 wildfires across the state. Particulate uh, levels change hourly, but Thursday morning, Woodburn was registering at 628 uh, on the air quality index, Silverton, 690. Salem was 401, but just eight miles to the southeast, Turner, 701. And although air quality had improved in some areas in the, along the Oregon coast and Lincoln City, still plagued with fluctuating levels between 3 to 500. The Eugene and Roseburg areas were generally in the 3 to 400 range. The wildfires have made it difficult to see along Oregon's 569 at uh, Coburg Road in the Eugene area, a uh, type of um, uh, of smoke particulates in your area can be found by Googling um, your particular area. But again, depending on where you happen to be in Oregon, it's, or excuse me, in, in uh, Portland Metro, for the most part, it's about 160, but you've got areas like Turner at 701, Salem at 401, and uh, Woodburn 628. So these are pretty serious numbers. Stay indoors and uh, avoid strenuous activity. Well, the Oregon Health Authority on Wednesday reported 125 new coronavirus cases in the state, eight more deaths, and that spans a period of, uh, of days. The daily case count is Oregon's lowest since the 25th of June when the state reported 124 confirmed or presumed infections. And that's an important distinction, confirmed or presumed. Wednesday's tally of uh, new cases is due in part to a, a paltry number of total tests reported over 24 hours. The state disclosed results for fewer than 2,600 people. Well, as the number of identified cases plummets, deaths continue mounting. Uh, again, we're looking uh, in this uh, case at eight more, spanning a period of uh, weeks. More Oregonians with COVID-19 died in August, 130 than at any point since the pandemic began. September is on a slightly slower pace with 18 fatalities already, or I should say so far. Taking a look at uh, the broader news, President Trump defended comments he made earlier this year in interviews with journalist Bob Woodward about the coronavirus pandemic, claiming that um, he wanted to show calmness. I'm the leader of the country. I can't be jumping up and down and scaring people, Trump told uh, Sean Hannity in an exclusive interview. I don't want to scare people. I want people uh, uh, not to panic. And that's exactly what I did, end quote. Well, excerpts from some of the interviews which form the basis of Woodward's fourth coming book, Rage, were published by the Washington Post earlier on Wednesday. In early February, the president told Woodward the coronavirus was deadly stuff while publicly comparing it to the seasonal flu, which, by the way, is a serious um, virus that uh, impacts thousands of people and uh, produces thousands of deaths 
across the country. More than a month later, on the 19th of March, uh, Trump admitted to Woodward he wanted to always play it down, referring to the virus. I still like playing it down because I don't want to create panic, he added at the time. Well, on Wednesday night, the president condemned Woodward as an author of hit jobs. He does hit jobs with everybody. He even did it with Obama's a constant hit jobs on George W. Bush. I guess they did three books. They were all terrible, Trump said. So I figured, you know, let's give a little uh, give it a little shot. I'll speak to him. It wasn't a big deal. I speak to uh, him and let's see. Well, that, those are all quotes, by the way. The book is uh, due to be released in its entirety shortly. Meanwhile, the author has been getting some flack, some suggesting that if he thought this was a serious an issue, uh, as it, uh, he purports it to be, he should have reported it at the time and not waited uh, until now. Meanwhile, Erica Kios, the owner of the coronavirus-closed San Francisco hair salon visited illegally by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week, said on Tucker Carlson tonight on Wednesday that she was closing shop for good because of the controversy. Uh, Nancy Pelosi said that she was uh, in. Uh, th- this was uh, set up. Uh, that she wasn't responsible for violating the rules that she herself uh, was fully aware of. Uh, But the uh, salon owner said, I'm actually done in San Francisco and closing my doors, unfortunately. Well, surveillance video last week of Pelosi visiting the salon for a hair wash and blowout, despite San Francisco salons being closed at the time because of the coronavirus pandemic. The video also showed Pelosi walking inside the salon without wearing a face mask. Well, Kios claimed she was subjected to attacks for exposing Pelosi. I started to just get a ton of phone calls, text messages, emails, all my Yelp reviews saying that they uh, hope I go under and that I fail, she said. So just a lot of negativity towards my business. She has now given up the ghost. Well, at least her shop. Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden mischaracterized the number of U.S. military deaths from the novel coronavirus during a campaign stop in Michigan on Wednesday, incorrectly saying more than 6,000 service members had died. Well, shortly after the event in Warren near Detroit, Biden's campaign quickly clarified that Biden had mixed up the numbers for Michigan with those of the military. As of Wednesday, only seven members of the U.S. military have died of COVID-19. Seven as opposed to 6,000. Vice President Biden has the utmost respect for the men and women of the armed services and believes it's the sacred duty of our country to properly equip them, look after their families when they're deployed and care for them when they return. Biden's deputy rapid response director, Michael Gwynn, said in a statement, Biden has taken criticism before for confusing statistics when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic. In June, he incorrectly said 120 million people had died from the contagion in the U.S. Meanwhile, President Trump's Supreme Court list has been released. He reveals the names of 20 more people he would consider nominating for the U.S. Supreme Court if given a second term. And a topless voter has shocked New Hampshire poll workers in a dispute over political clothing requirements there. New York City protesters leading lives of wealth and privilege were busted for rioting. Susan Sarandon receives backlash after voicing support against Joe Biden vote. An Arkansas police uh, officer, that's killer, gets two life sentences plus 835 years. I don't think he's getting out anytime soon. TikTok. The U.S. is discussing ways to avoid its sale. Facebook, Google, Twitter are urging or rather being urged by the EU to do more against fake news. And Deutsche Bank U.S., uh, the unit pays $583,000 to settle a Ukraine sanctions lapse. 
More on that, I'm sure, coming in the days ahead. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to hear from Meg Wilson, author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, 17 years ago, when my next guest's husband confessed to years of sexual addiction, addiction rather, Uh, Her world seemed to fall apart around her. Her first response was that she wanted to get a divorce. I mean, who wouldn't? In the moment, she wanted the pain to end, but God told her to wait. And because she and her husband were willing to work toward change, God was able to restore what had been broken. She knows the devastation that sexual addiction can bring to a marriage, but has come through the other side stronger. And now she ministers to other women, offering them hope and helping them to do the same. She says the world uses the word hope as if it were a dream or a wish of something to happen. God's word, however, is much more potent. It is the certainty of things yet unseen. The fuel of faith ignites our hope. I see every day how finding hope takes a woman weakened by shame and devastation and makes her strong with resolve and trust that the Lord is with her. Hope makes all the difference. Well, her book is titled Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. And she provides reassuring counsel, compassionate insight, and wise direction to those who have found themselves in similar circumstances. By sharing her story, talking to other women who've walked the same road, and turning to Scripture, she's helped countless readers through the steps of recovery and shows how they can follow the same path out of that darkness. Well, Meg Wilson is my guest. She is the author of Hope After Betrayal and a regular speaker at uh, women's uh, events, Bible studies and conferences. 18 years ago, she began leading healing heart groups. Then in 2013, she founded the Hope After Betrayal Ministries to bring help and hope to women whose husbands are caught on the web of sexual addiction. Her mission is to help women find hope and healing from the pain of their partner's sexual betrayal. In addition, she hopes to increase awareness in the church of how to minister to the brokenhearted. She and her husband, Dave, have been married for more than 35 years, have two adult daughters. She makes her home in Vancouver, Washington, and we are just delighted to have uh, Meg Wilson with us today to talk about her book, Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Georgine. I'm excited to be here. Well, this is a difficult uh, subject, especially for listeners who are perhaps in the middle of this. Maybe they've just discovered that there has been a betrayal. Let's begin by uh, telling your story just a bit so women have some indication of where you have come from. Well, the story began partly when my husband, well, actually a friend called us and said that he was stepping down as a deacon of his church. and. I knew this man. He was a good husband, a good dad. That was the first I had ever heard anything about sexual addiction. But that was also the impetus for my husband confessing that he too struggled with pornography when he traveled. So I did what a lot of what I thought a good Christian wife does. I forgave him and I was praising God that he confessed to me. But what he did is not uncommon he did a partial confession. He told me as much as he thought I could handle. Mm. So we literally we literally moved away from that state and moved to Washington. And we were in a church that had a group for men who struggle with addiction amazingly. And um, so he was in a group. He had a counselor. But he had left a foothold because he had left information out. And so the enemy just waited um, waited until he was weak and was able to pull him deeper and farther. And by that time, I had started 
I had started groups at our church. I was actually about to share my testimony of hope with our very first group. And um, he had told his leader what had happened. And he said, you've got to get home now and you've got to tell your wife everything because she's about to share her testimony. Mm. And, uh, and so he did. And I was completely and I was just completely in shock. I couldn't even fathom what was happening. And I, I went back and forth between not wanting to go to the co- the group and going to the group. Finally, my co-facilitator said, I'm, I'm picking you up and I'm not going to answer my phone. I think you need to come and share what happened. So, of course, I went from facilitator to participant and I immediately had 10 women there to support me. But I, I feel bad for that first group. They had to kind of watch their worst nightmare played out for them. Mm. You originally uh, released this book more than 10 years ago, and what we're talking about today is a revised and updated edition of the book. What's been updated and revised um, that wasn't present in your original version? Well, I am trying to be a lifelong learner, so in 10 years, there were a lot of things I had learned about the topic, about the process, just walking with more and more women. And then I also, after having a group of primarily African-American women, I realized that there are some cultural differences. So I actually had my friends help me uh, create a fourth woman story, Dee Dee, who has more of an ethnic voice, who could be a woman of color. And she finds out about her husband's issues when a woman shows up at her doorstep with with his baby. Um, So that was something that was not on my radar before and is is more common in um, Hispanic and African-American cultures. So I want my goal was that every woman who picks up the book finds herself in the pages because when we find ourselves in a story, we're more open to, to hearing God's words rather than somebody just telling you something or or trying to teach you something. It's it's more powerful. Jesus used stories, mm-hmm. so I think he was think he was onto something. <laughs> well you used a series of fictional women who represent the many ways that we get stuck uh, as well as making good choices um once uh, sexual addiction has been exposed. Describe how that works in uh, not only telling the unique stories that each of them represents, but helping your readers see in their stories um, something of their own experience. Right. So we we basically go through the process, the initial the initial process of finding out whether that's disclosure, dis- discovery, and I call that blackout. And so we see one woman who responds very much in anger and lets her anger sort of carry her and make some not great choices. And we see someone who's more like I was, who didn't tap into the anger and really wanted to go straight to forgiveness. And, you know, so each chapter is sort of a different phase on the process. And we see women respond differently. They respond differently when they show up at a support group or they may have a different experience. They may not do that. They may go to a counselor and maybe not have a good positive experience. So I think that most women have have shared that they find something of their story mm-hmm. in each of the stories in all and actually all four. There's a little there's a little bit of something that they relate to. Mm-hmm. Now, when you're talking about your readers, you're talking about primarily women who have 
learned that their their husband has a problem with sexual addiction. What is her responsibility? I think it's important to talk about the role that a, a wife it should be expected to play or what she is responsible for, because we may tend to take on more than uh, is right for us to assume. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of times women feel responsible. I think one of the first places the enemy takes us is there's something wrong with me. I wasn't pretty enough, thin enough, whatever, nice enough. Um, so absolutely the wife any woman who is in this situation needs to know that this is not her fault, that there is nothing you could have done to change another person's decisions. Most of these men come to their marriages already addicted. Um, so it's that's not their responsibility. The other thing that women want to do is help their husbands, um, help make appointments for them to go to a counselor, or they'll listen to the radio program and they'll want their husband's to do something when we can't, unfortunately, there's nothing we can do to make them get help, to make them get better. So that's not our responsibility. I'm Ironically, the one place where we are responsible is maybe the, the one place it's harder to find. We're responsible for how I'm going to respond. In other words, what is God calling me to do in this situation? He's not surprised by it, even though it wasn't his plan or his purpose. But his plan for my life is in no way diminished or reduced by what, by the choices my husband's made. So it's like, what do you have for me here? What do you want to teach me about your character, Lord? And um, and it's an opportunity to really, really lean into to the Spirit, really learn the voice of God, and then let him guide the process. And so that's been the greatest gift out of this whole thing is my relationship with God has gone places I never knew it could. We're going to continue our conversation. We're talking with Meg Wilson. She is the author of Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. The book is published by Kregel. We'll be back in a moment to continue that conversation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Meg Wilson. She is the author of Hope After Betrayal and a regular speaker to women's groups, Bible studies, and conferences. She and her husband, Dave, have been married for 30, uh, more than 35 years. They have two adult daughters. Uh, the Wilsons make their home in Vancouver, Washington. We're talking about her book, Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Now, sadly, this is an issue that uh, confronts more women than we've seen in the past. Certainly the Internet, social media makes it uh, easier to engage in uh, sexual addiction behaviors and beyond that. But what was your first step toward healing once you discovered the full uh, weight of what your husband had now confessed was his struggle? Well, I guess the absolute first thing I did was get on my knees and probably just cried out to God and said, why? And then I just, I remember the first time I picked up my Bible and I said something like, okay, God, I'm picking up my Bible because this is what Christians do. But I I really didn't think there was anything in there. And the very first thing I read was in Isaiah. And the very first words were that your maker is your bridegroom. And then it went on to describe about um, that that I felt like a woman who had married young only to be abandoned. So he was describing exactly how I felt and reminding me that he is the number one person in my life. So that was just the first thing that reminded me that 
this is real and personal. And then I just reached out to any and all resources that he put in our path. My husband had a counselor. I had a counselor. We developed a spiritual care team based on the book by Earl and Sandy Wilson called Restoring the Fallen. I um, I had a group, my group, he had a group. So really anything that I felt like God put in front of us, we, we grabbed onto to try and and do this slow, painful journey towards health and healing. And in the beginning, it was a matter of just watching. I had to just believe the behaviors because when someone's lied to you for so long, the words don't mean anything. So I had to just do my work and then watch and see, is he serious about doing his work or is he just checking off the box? Mm -hmm. Now, you were fortunate in that your husband wanted to work toward Uh, reconciliation and to deal with a sexual addiction. My guess is there are women listening today um, who would very much like to save their marriage, but don't see that same um, desire on the part of their husband. Maybe they're not uh, transparent about the nature of the problem, or they're not willing to engage in the kind of uh, help that you and your husband both sought. What do you say to her? Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And I I say that well, actually, for all of us, we have to get our eyes off of our husband and onto onto God, mm-hmm. onto Christ, and that the plan for her life that he has is not in no way changed or diminished but by what choices her husband's making. And I think sometimes we we hold on to marriage, and it's almost like holding on to a dead animal. In other words, the covenant, we've all been through divorce. My covenant was broken. So it, it's a matter of can it be restored or not, and only God knows the answer to that. He would obviously we would all love for all of the marriages to be restored, but at some point when a husband isn't doing the work and a and a wife's very health is at risk, then God says, you know, it's time to move on, and now you need to file in the courts of man that which has already happened in the courts of heaven. So I think it's it's there's no small thing. I uh, it's I think in just about every divorce in a majority of divorces there's one person who didn't want that. That's what makes it so devastating. Mhm. Mhm. Now you have already given us an example of transparency but why is there such great power in transparency and how critical is it to restoring a relationship that's been broken because of sexual addiction? Well, it's I it's essential between the couple um Thankfully, not everybody is called to be as transparent as my husband and I. This is an act of obedience. Mm-hmm. This is something that, that God's called. I, in fact, I tell people, be careful who you share with. This, is, this information can, can be used against you. So all, all, of the cho- all of the steps that a woman needs to make need to be guided by God's hand, by the Holy Spirit. So the good news is not every woman has to be out in public talking about what happened. Um, but transparency between the couple is yes. essential. That's the way you rebuild. That's the way you rebuild trust. I know that you, your husband was reluctant to tell you the full story because he thought you could only handle what he had told you in the beginning. How important is it? Um, the way that a woman responds once she's being told by her husband, um, what he's struggling with. Well, I think I think it's it, it's it can be an important factor in the sense that if a woman is like, well, 
you know, if you go outside of our marriage, if if you have an affair, well, that's the line, then I'm going to divorce you. Well, if a husband knows that a wife has said that, that's obviously the enemy's going to use that and say, well, you can't tell her this. So um, I think if, had someone told me what was going to happen, I would have said that it would have been the end of the marriage. I would have divorced. I would have had you know, I would have felt like I had justification and all of that. Every every path is different. It it just we have to we have to stay close to what God is telling us because God told me to wait, but He was also very gentle. He said, "I'm not telling you to do this over and over again," but He knew what I did not know. He knew that my husband would do the work and that he would um, fight for for restoration and healing. That's not always the case. So I do, I know there are women who've stood before me that say, you know what, I just have a peace and God's saying it's time to go. Now we're talking about the book, Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. Meg Wilson is my guest. Tell us more about the format of the book. You you uh, not only share your own experience, but you also reflect the experiences of many women that you have worked with in a very creative way. Yes, I I basically, those are the four, there are four women's stories that, that we walk through each of the chapters. And we watch the way they deal with anger. We watch the way they deal with um, discovery, disclosure, their own healing path. And, um, and then as we talk, as we go through the information for that chapter, I might weave in the choices that I made, the ones that were good and maybe the ones that were not so good. And so that way, um, it's not just a series, it's not just a, someone preaching at you, or it's, it's very much in story format. And then there's also a place for personal reflection. There are scriptures for the, for the women to look up and engage with, and then an opportunity for her to journal her thoughts and, and listen to what the Holy Spirit's telling her for her specific situation. Well, the book is Hope After Betrayal, Healing When Sexual Addiction Invades Your Marriage. You can uh, learn more about Meg Wilson at hopeafterbetrayal.com. The book is published by Craigle and is currently available. Thank you so much for being willing to share your story and to come alongside and support women um, all across the country and, and certainly in our area as well. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Georgine. Appreciate God bless. It. We're going to take a break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. While the polls are tightening and Trump is tightening his race against the former vice president, down six to Biden, according to Morning Consult, which had Biden up up 10 in late August. The story claims Biden is in better shape than Hillary four years ago, but that depends on the poll. Hillary had a stretch in early September when her lead was in the low single digits, but in early October, it ballooned. On October 9th, 2016, MS, uh, rather NBC, Wall Street Journal had her up by 14 points. But of course, until ballots are actually cast and counted, we don't actually have a winner. So there you have it. Hot temperatures, high winds are fueling fires uh, all across the West Coast. Some are calling it a once-in-a-generation event in Oregon. As expected from uh, any top Democrat, Obama blamed climate change. 
Los Angeles has banned Halloween there. What uh, presents a bigger transmission risk, some are asking. Kids in masks on porches or massive numbers of adults crowding into public spaces and shouting slogans. Well, Los Angeles County's health officials chose the former, declaring a ban on Halloween trick-or-treating to prevent the spread of COVID-19. This was probably not going to be a big year for trick-or-treat uh, or treating anyway, but a formal ban on candy collection raises some questions about government power and its arbitrary applications. Well, CNN's Chris Cuomo was caught giving Michael Cohen interview advice, telling him specifically how to answer certain questions. It's not what journalists are supposed to do. And Kamala Harris, a vice presidential running mate to Joe Biden, has abandoned the Me Too uh, movement in meeting with the Blake family. Suddenly, she and others cozy up to a man accused of sexual assault. But she previously changed course on Biden, whom she said during early debates was responsible for assaulting the women who accused him of just that. Well, DC Comics plans to feature Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ms. Tlaib, which is rather interesting. Not all heroes wear capes. DC Comics announced on its website, Wonder Woman has been an inspiration for decades. And while not everyone would choose her star-spangled outfit for themselves, her compassion and fairness are worthy of emulation. We'll be presenting tales of the real-world heroes who take up Diana's uh, mantle and work in the fields of science, social justice, activism, diplomacy, and more. End quote. Well, two women who assaulted a child and took his um, and uh, Trump hat have been charged with a hate crime. Olivia Winslow and Cameron Amy, both 21 and from Wilmington, were indicted by the Newcastle County Grand Jury on Tuesday on charges of second-degree robbery, second-degree conspiracy, endangering the welfare of a child, third-degree assault, attempted third-degree assault, offensive touching, and felony hate crimes, all to snatch the hat off of a kid's head. Well, James Mattis told then DNI Dan Coates that they may be forced to take collective action against unfit Trump, according to Bob Woodward, the book to be released soon. William Barr says there could be more criminal charges in the Durham investigation as well. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler is viewing, viewed as negative by two thirds of the city's voters and salon owner Erica Kios. Uh, is closing her shop after the maskless visit by Nancy Special Rules Pelosi. Voter fraud cases have emerged in the battleground states of North Carolina and Georgia. I mean, what could possibly go wrong in a presidential election coming up? And a full black professor, Jessica Krug, has resigned from her teaching position at George Washington University. University of Michigan apologized for the apparent segregation of student events, apparent or actual. Still questions there. A whistleblower claims that the Department of Homeland Security leaders altered intelligence. The complaint was released by co-conspirator Adam Schiff. And the U.S. canceled over 1,000 visas for Chinese nationals deemed security risks. The Chicago murder rate was cut roughly in half since before Operation Legend, which seems to be working. And as D.C. Mayor, D.C.'s mayor seeks to remove statues, Hillsdale College is putting up more of them. Well, on this day in history, 1897, a 25-year-old London taxi driver named George Smith becomes the first person ever arrested for drunk driving, 1897. 
On this day in history, 1912, Tarzan makes his debut as Tarzan of the Apes by Edgar Rice Burroughs, no relation. In first, uh, it's first published in the All Story magazine. 1962, the U.S. Supreme Court orders the University of Mississippi to admit James Meredith, a black student. And in 1963, the following year, 20 black students enter Alabama public schools following a standoff between federal authorities and Governor George Wallace. While the Senate has failed to advance the targeted $300 billion coronavirus bill, relief is now in limbo. The bill failed to clear the procedural hurdle that was uh, set up today. Republicans' uh, coronavirus relief legislation failed to clear that procedural hurdle in the Senate, effectively killing the legislation that the GOP leadership touted as an important economic lifeline and Democrats decried as a purely partisan and paltry effort. The legislation needed 60 votes to advance, but came up short 52 to 47. All Republicans voted yes, except for Senator Rand Paul, who joined with all Democrats present who voted no. The failure in the Senate puts the chance of a new round of coronavirus relief in limbo as the country continues to reel from the health crisis and the economic fallout that's killed some 190,000 Americans and left millions out of work. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell devised the plan with Republicans, though he'd uh, needed at least seven Democrats to join him if the legislation was ever intended to uh, clear the 60-vote threshold. Although Democrats were not involved in drafting the plan, McConnell blamed the bill's failure on the opposing party and accused them of not wanting to deliver a bipartisan bill to the president before an election. Working families have suffered and waited and wondered whether Washington Democrats really care more about hurting President Trump than hurting them through this crisis, McConnell said in a floor speech prior to the vote. The legislation would have given an extra $300 per week in unemployment benefits through the 27th of December. A second round of Paycheck Protection Program funds to small businesses worth $258 billion and $105 billion for schools and colleges. But the bill contained two things that Democrats panned as poison pills. McConnell's liability protection plan that would limit lawsuits against businesses and schools from people who contract COVID-19 on their premises and at least $5 billion for school choice initiatives to help parents fund private schooling. Senate Majority Leader Schumer blasted the skinny bill, as they refer to it as emaciated, and said he hopes bipartisan talks could resume. He said Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin and White House uh, Chief of Staff Mark Meadows may be forced to return to the table to strike a deal with Democrats because the coronavirus is the issue Americans care most about during this election year. Democrats have pushed for more direct payments to Americans, state and local aid, food assistance, bigger unemployment checks, rental assistance and more. Let's not be tokenism when we have a major disaster, House Speaker Pelosi said of the GOP plan. Let's not have a skinny bill when we have a massive problem. Well, this was McConnell's second attempt at moving the legislation in the GOP-led Senate. In July, he prepared to rather proposed a $1 trillion relief package, but it failed to go anywhere in the upper chamber, in part because his own caucus is divided on whether a new round of relief is warranted, given the rising deficit and the positive job reports. Congress passed four overwhelmingly bipartisan bills in the early days of the pandemic, with the last piece of legislation to boost small businesses signed into law by the president in April. But several of the programs have dried or expired, including eviction protections and $600 per week expanded unemployment benefits. So it continues. More young people are living with at least one parent than at any point in documented American history, including the end of the Great Depression, according to a new poll from the Pew Research Center. 
The share of 18 to 29-year-olds living at home has increased from 47% in February before the COVID-19 pandemic to 52% in July, the poll found. In those five months, 2.6 million young Americans have moved back in with mom and dad. The five percentage points to bounce in five months of 2020 is equal to the increase seen in the decade that spanned most of the Great Depression from 1930 to 1940. The share increased from 43 to 48 percent, according to Pew's analysis of the uh, census, a mark not matched until the coronavirus-induced economic crisis of 2020. Um, it uh, does not capture any data points during the Great Depression, only at the beginning and end via the census surveys of the 1930 years, 1930 and 1940. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Portland City Council members voted unanimously on Wednesday to prohibit the public and, in some cases, private use of facial recognition technology. That makes uh, Portland the most stringent ban of this kind nationwide, according to uh, several reports. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and City Commissioner Joanne Hardesty introduced the bans, which immediately took effect for city agencies and will be in effect on the 1st of January for private businesses. The Oregonian and the Oregon Public Broadcasting both reported, the ordinances bar the use of facial recognition technology by city agencies and on public property within the city, but also prohibits its use by private entities in places of public accommodation, according to the city agency. Well, facial recognition technology violates the public's personal privacy and has a demonstrated gender and racial bias, the, the mayor said. Uh, Technology exists to make our lives easier, not for public and private entities to use as a weapon against the very citizens they serve and accommodate, the Democrat uh, mayor reportedly said. He also lauded the news on Twitter, saying Thursday was a truly historic day for the city of Portland. We own our privacy, Hardesty said, before the council took a vote, and it's our obligation to make sure that we're not allowing people to gather it up secretly and sell it for profit or fear-based activity, end quote. Well, this type of technology gathers and analyzes people's biometric data, the physical facial features that are used unique to an individual and can verify someone's identity. A smart city PDX website dedicated to the ordinance explains Portland residents and visitors should enjoy access to public spaces with reasonable privacy. The website uh, site goes on to say uh, the use of facial recognition in law enforcement may identify the wrong person. The source of these concerns is the biases against black and brown people, women and older people. The collection of biometric information with no oversight or safeguards creates risks to the people they went on to point out. These risks and negative impacts are worse to those who are experiencing the biases. The agency further explained its uh, concerns surrounding the lack of privacy certifications and oversight that integrate all aspects of privacy. Again, quoting from the webpage, any privacy breach of biometric data is very hard to mitigate and control. Risks increase by lack of proper due diligence and transparency. Apps that use face biometric data must have privacy by design, the city agency wrote. The city wants to make sure that children's data and all personal information are safe. Well, a Portland Police Bureau spokesperson didn't immediately respond 
uh, to request for a res- for a comment on all of this, but the department has previously said it does not use such technology. So it may be an answer to a problem that doesn't exist in the state. According to the Oregonian, at least one private business in Portland, a food store with three locations in the city, had used the technology upon customers approaching to and entering its stores. So apparently it's a technology we don't uh, see widely used in the Portland area, but the city council addressed it anyway. Well, the so-called revolutionaries who were busted for rioting at a new Antifan Black Panther Party rally took a break from their yacht club lives and modeling careers to be a part of the mayhem. Well, the seven comrades, as they're referred to, including wealthy Upper East Sider Clara Uh, Crabber had their uh, mugshots tweeted out by the NYPD early Wednesday, days after their arrests for smashing storefront windows in the uh, uh, one of the districts there. They were cuffed during a protest organized by the Panthers and the revolutionary revolutionary abolitionist movement groups condemning the death of Daniel Prude, who was killed while in custody of the Rochester Police Department in March. Aside from that one individual, the redhead daughter of an architect and a child psychiatrist with a second home in Connecticut, five of the others arrested appear to also come from privileged backgrounds, leading one police source to call their actions the height of hypocrisy. Uh, One Frank um, Furmeister, 30 years old, uh, charged with rioting and possession of a graffiti instrument, is a freelance art director who's designed ads for Joe Coffee and has also worked for Pepsi, Samsung and Glenlivet, among other high profile brands. His LinkedIn profile and portfolio shows he studied fine arts with the concentration in photography at Florida State College in Jacksonville, according to his LinkedIn and his most recent address is a stately home in, uh, on Reed Island Drive in the city's Tawny um, Beacon Hills and Harbor neighborhood. Public records show calls for um, he, to him were unreturned. Another 20-year-old who studied at the Sarah Lawrence College from uh, Great Neck, uh, according to police and the family. While the young activist uh, lost her phone during a rowdy weekend of protests and promptly called her uh, her mom, who made arrangements to replace the cell phone right away, Her mom told the Post. Well, in any case, uh, they're not just protesting, but they were uh, involved in rioting and destroying property uh, only to be discovered that they're returning to rather tawny homes and neighborhoods and have been called out for what uh, has been identified or called out as hypocrisy. A retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, a key impeachment witness against President Trump, was in fact the original source of the Trump-Russia collusion push, not the whistleblower, the alleged whistleblower. Um, Byron York uh, reported on Wednesday, York reveals that Vindman, who retired from the Army in July after being fired from the National Security Council in February, was the driving force for Democrats' impeachment in his new book, Obsession, Inside the Washington Establishment's Never-Ending War on Trump. It didn't take a real rocket scientist that the source of this, the original source of this, was Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, York uh, uh, wrote. If you remember, early on in the Ukraine matter, the Democrats said they wanted the whistleblower to testify, and then they changed their mind, and they didn't want the whistleblower to testify, and they began to shut off any Republican attempt to find out who the whistleblower was. Washington Examiner chief political correspondent asks, so the question is, if the whistleblower wasn't in the White House, 
How did he learn what was going on? Well, he points out that Vindman was one of several people who listened to Trump's call with the Ukrainian president. But Vindman was the only one who was disturbed by what took place. He was the only one who thought there was a problem there. Well, Vindman testified to the Intelligence Committee that he only told two people outside the White House, George Kent, uh, who was a State Department official who specialized in Ukraine and a member of the Intelligence Committee. At that point, Adam Schiff, other Democrats interpreted or rather interrupted you. Uh, you cannot say, you cannot ask the other person uh, he spoke to, and Republicans said, well, why can't we um, ask about that? And they said because it would tend to identify the whistleblower. Well, Republicans had a very difficult time handling Vindman because although they felt he was the origin of all of this, he was a decorated military officer. Well, Trump reacted to the expert in uh, on Vindman in York's book on Thursday, saying, no, Vindman knew the call itself to the Ukrainian president was perfect, but also knew the whistleblower report described the call incorrectly way off. Why didn't Vindman say so? Uh, that's why Shifty, referring to the uh, committee chairman, didn't want the whistleblower to testify. A big scam. Again, a Trump tweet. Well, York also claimed former special counsel Robert Mueller's team formed in May in 2017 knew early on there wasn't evidence for the Trump-Russia collusion, but continued to investigate. Mueller looked into everything, but what was happening was Trump lawyers could see that Mueller wasn't uh, getting anywhere. And by the fall and certainly by the end of the year, they knew that collusion was a dry hole for Mueller. York said uh, in his book he had not come up with what he was supposed to find. So the bottom line in all of this is apparently there was no whistleblower uh, except for Vendman himself, who was the instigator of what became a very long and arduous process uh, investigating the president. Well, it's becoming increasingly clear that we should conduct the November election in a nor as normal a manner as possible. We should have as many of our regular polling places open as we can, and we should resist the ongoing push to have an all-male election or a massive increase in absentee balloting with the, uh, cul the elimination, rather, of the protective protocols in place for such ballots. Well, recent personal experiences illustrate why the grocery store and the pharmacy, these retail establishments had all the safety protocols in place that health experts have recommended from line spacing to a mask wearing requirement to sanitation stations. If we can go shopping in person, why can't we vote in person? It's an important question. We'll talk more about that when we come back from the break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the question I posed just before the break, if we can go shopping in person, why can't we vote in person? Now, that wouldn't apply, of course, to the state of Oregon. We spent several years preparing for all mail-in ballots. I opposed it when it was proposed. I opposed it when we had the opportunity to vote on it, and I still oppose it, but that's the way we vote in Oregon. But it took a very long time to prepare for just that. In other places, that's not the case. The question is, if we can go shopping in person, why can't we vote in person? Well, the answer, of course, is that we can, despite the push by some to scare voters away from the polls. Now, we know we can because multiple states and counties have held uh, elections with in-person voting in uh, this and prior pandemics and have done so successfully using all the health safety protocols recommended by experts. Liberia did it in 2014 in the midst of the Ebola pandemic sweeping West Africa. South Korea did it in 
On April the 15th of this year, when 29 million South Koreans uh, voted in their national elections, reports indicate there was no COVID-19 spike after that election. Wisconsin did it on the 7th of April when several hundred thousand state residents voted in person in their regular polling places. The Wisconsin Election Commission implemented very strict safety procedures, stricter than uh, experienced Uh, what uh, has been experienced by many others when they go shopping. That included social distancing in voter lines, hand-washing sanitization stations for all voters when entering and leaving the polling place, as well as regular sanitizing of all tables, door handles, voting booths, voting equipment, everything else being touched or handled in the polling place. They even had curbside voting for those who didn't want to come into the polling place. Well, a report that was released by the World Health Organization and Stanford University after the Wisconsin election found no detectable surge in COVID-19 transmission due to the April 7th election. Similarly, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the federal agency leading our response to COVID-19, issued a report on the 31st of July looking at the experience of Milwaukee, the largest city in Wisconsin. It concluded that there was no increase in cases, hospitalizations or deaths from COVID-19 due to that election. In fact, there were fewer cases reported during the incubation period after the election than in the 13 days preceding the election. It can and should be done, particularly if it means we can hold an election that we can all trust uh, is being handled properly. Well, parents in America and around the world are waking up to the disturbing reality that their children are being subjected to a new woke form of radical sex ed called comprehensive sexuality education. Again, comprehensive sexuality education. Well, systematic sexual indoctrination would be a wetter description of the comprehensive sexuality education programs that are being dished up sometimes daily to children in counties as diverse, rather countries as diverse as Nambia, Nepal and Nauru and the U.S. um, from Montana to Michigan to Maine. Well, Minnesota State Representative Kathy Lomer, Republican, calls the, the program pornography, saying it is something even some of my colleagues, men especially on the House floor, didn't want to look at. We couldn't show this on the 10 o'clock p.m. news, yet we want your fourth grade children to be looking at it. Well, and don't think for a minute that your state is exempt from radical, comprehensive sexuality education. The federal government is using your tax dollars to give Planned Parenthood organizations and their partners a total of $101 million in grants annually to implement radical, sexually graphic abortion rights promoting CSE programs. Well, this began under the Obama administration. It's continued under President Trump. Uh, I am deeply concerned about comprehensive sexuality education, or CSE, for four reasons. Dr. Michelle Cretella, executive director of the American College of Pediatricians, said in a documentary, The War on Children, the Comprehensive Sexuality Education Agenda. She warns, first, it sexualizes children. Second, it threatens children's health. Third, it promotes a very dangerous gender ideology. And fourth, it undermines the parent-child relationship, which violates parental rights. Well, the StopCSE.org website exposes multiple um, egregious examples of harmful comprehensive sexuality education curricula distributed both internationally and in the U.S. If you are unfamiliar with it or unaware of it, now's a good time to check it out especially if your sons and daughters are being educated from home. Well, the U.S. House of Representatives also, they're seeking to impose dangerous gender ideology on children in schools through the Equality Act, 
Well, this House-passed legislation could lead to federally mandated curriculum as well as controversial policies that threaten students' safety and privacy and fairness in girls' sports. Several senators are trying to pass the bill as well. At the international level, United Nations agencies have been pushing comprehensive sexuality education worldwide, especially in developing countries. During one U.N. negotiation session, a representative of the tiny island nation of Nauru bravely protested. Um, In 2018, the United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization, or UNESCO, in collaboration with the United Nations Children's Fund, the Joint United Nations Program on HIV and AIDS, the World Health Watch organizations came out of the proverbial closet with a publication titled International Technical Guidance on Sexuality Education. Well, this radical guidance redefines abstinence to mean not just abstaining from sex, but also deciding when and with whom to have sex. Well, the International Planned Parenthood Federation is the largest provider of CSE programs worldwide, and its affiliate, Planned Parenthood Federation of America, is the largest CSE provider in the U.S., well, Planned Parenthood's international group has 65,000 service points in 170 countries, and the sexualization of children increases the flow of money to their coffers. The more the comprehensive sexuality education is adopted, the more kids become customers for condoms, contraceptives, abortions, testing, treatment for sexually transmitted diseases, the vaccination for human papillomavirus, and now cross-sex hormones. Well, many of the programs, the CSE programs that were analyzed according to the 15 harmful CSE elements analysis tool actually refer to children, uh, refer children rather to Planned Parenthood clinics at some point in the program um, as um, the uh, source for answers and direction moving forward. Uh, Pro-lifers should listen up. We're talking about comprehensive sexuality education. It is the number one tool for advancing abortion worldwide by indoctrinating the next generation in abortion and the sexual rights ideology and advocacy. Well, the manufacturer of the handheld Easy Grip abortion suction device hosted an event at the UN titled Without Abortion, It's Not Comprehensive Sexuality Education, revealing what we have known for years. If you are incensed by all of this, and you should be, you'll want to join the Protecting Children in Education Summit, an online event uh, that uh, took place um, by the Heritage Foundation, can now be found online. At the summit, uh, they offered information about the threats of comprehensive sexuality education in every state, the Equality Act, gender ideology, and parental rights, uh, and also become uh, equipped with some great tools, resources, effective action steps to protect children, and so on. Again, you can find out more at the Heritage Foundation, and we're talking about the Comprehensive Sexuality Education Program coming to a school near you. Well, the Congressional Budget Office released an update to its federal budget projections, the first full update to include effects from COVID-19. And while the federal government finances were already grim in January, despite several years of solid economic growth, this updated report details things have gone from bad, well, to even worse. First of all, the deficit for 2020 is expected to reach $3.3 trillion, or over $25,000 per household. As a share of the economy, this deficit is the largest since World War II. Now, this massive deficit is a combination of pre-existing structural deficits. The Congressional Budget Office projected $1.1 trillion deficits for 2020 in early March, and the increase in spending related to COVID-19 and a decline in revenues. 
Well, the $3.3 trillion deficit figure does not include the potential of an additional COVID-19 relief package, which seems less likely before the end of the year now, uh, which would likely add another $1 trillion or more to the deficit. Secondly, the combined deficit for 2021 through 2030 is projected at just under $13 trillion. Considering that the current gross debt is $26.7 trillion, the per-household share would stand at about $275,000 just 10 years from now. And third, several major trust funds are projected to go broke faster as a result of the economic downturn. Well, the Congressional Budget Office projects that Social Security Retirement's trust fund will become insolvent in 2031, just 11 years from now, and a full year earlier than projected last year. And if Congress fails to reform the program, preferably making it smaller and better targeted and avoiding tax increases, all retirees would experience a roughly 25 percent reduction in benefits. This is no longer a future generation problem since most retirees currently receiving Social Security will still be alive in 2031. Something to think about. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Hollywood once fought pretty fiercely for freedom of speech and against censorship. Those um, sanctimonious folks have never let us forget the McCarthy era, the blacklisting, even though at the time communists really were infiltrating Hollywood. And while Hollywood eventually beat the blacklisting of the communists in its midst through appeals to the First Amendment, it since retained that tactic and employed it against conservatives. These days, Tinseltown is arguably even more compromised than it was when Screen Actors Guild President Ronald Reagan was fighting the fight. Well, it isn't um, so much about communist infiltration, though. Communist Chinese, in fact, have gotten Hollywood to do its bidding through a subtler form and arguably cleaner method the studio's bottom line. Well, why has China's influence worked and why has it gone undetected and unopposed for so long? Well, the answer, because the communist country and its 1.4 billion inhabitants present a massive market for any business more than four times that of the United States. If only 3% of China's population buys a movie ticket, for example, that's 42 million more fannies in the, uh, in the seats of a theater. Just think about how that can improve a studio's bottom line. Well, according to one site, the average movie ticket goes for $7 in China. That means those 42 million tickets bring in $294 million. Hollywood's cut of that would easily cover production budgets for big films. There's a reason why actor Richard Gere hasn't been in major studio productions for years. His advocacy for Tibet, which has been occupied for decades by the Chinese communists. Well, since China has a very limited number of slots for foreign movies, only 34 per year, no studio wants to risk its shot at a lucrative spot in China cinemas. So they comply. And Hollywood isn't the only industry groveling for access. Look at the NBA, Silicon Valley, and just about anyone with a product to sell. And so they remain silent about the barbaric treatment of Uyghur Muslims, for example, the barbaric one-child policy that was in effect for decades, the routine human rights violations, the interference in our 1996 presidential election on behalf of Bill Clinton via illegal campaign contributions, and even China's aggression in the South China Sea. Tibet is never spoken of, even as China has kidnapped the 11th uh, Lama, 
Uh, those who across China, like Gear, get the cold shoulder from the rest of Hollywood. Well, what's to be done about all of this? Well, part of the problem is that we're not dealing with overt infiltration. It can be said that China is simply exercising its power of the purse within a free market. For all of the, um, the grassroots patriots have used to uh, uh, impose boycotts to try to affect change, China is essentially doing the same, albeit with a boycott that can make or break a studio's fortunes. Our nation's awakening caused by the Chinese communist treachery regarding the Wuhan coronavirus is changing that to some degree. And a tell-all from one former Hollywood executive likely will add more details. Well, the ultimate answer, though, may involve American consumers simply telling Hollywood to choose between our money and theirs. Don't be certain what the answer will be. And perhaps a little free market competition of our own. Say a new studio or a new broadcast network committed to telling the stories that a Chinese behold in Hollywood is afraid of. Well, few Americans uh, companies are as woke as Disney. It has long held gay days at Disney World each June, and it's begun advancing LGBT characters in its movies at a more frequent and deliberate pace. Disney princesses have condemned Disney uh, princess stories for their messages about women. The company will literally uh, box check for minorities when making movies, and it's putting disclaimers ahead of its previous triggering works, the ones that weren't sent down the memory hole entirely. But when it comes to actual violations of human rights, including genocide, Disney offers worse than nothing. The most devastating part of Mulan, which is Disney's much-anticipated live-action remake of the 1998 uh, animated film, isn't the story, it's the credits. Writes Washington Post columnist Isaac Stone Fish of the movie that uh, premiered on uh, Disney Plus on the 4th of this month. After filming much of the movie in China, Fish notes in the credits, Disney offers a special thanks to more than a dozen Chinese institutions that helped with the film. These include four Chinese Communist Party propaganda departments in the region of Xinjiang, as well as the Public Security Bureau in the city of Turpin in the same region. Organizations that are facilitating crimes against humanity. But it doesn't matter because, well, there's the bottom line. Well, that would be the slave labor camps making things like shoes for another infamously woke company, Nike. The Public Security Bureau is the subject of U.S. government sanctions due to uh, these labor camps and re-education camps. And the Uyghurs just filed an official complaint with the International Criminal Court. Well, Mr. Fish explains that more than a million Muslims in Xinjiang, mostly from the Uyghur minority, have been imprisoned in concentration camps. Some have been released. Countless numbers have died. Four sterilization campaigns have caused the birth rate in that area to plummet roughly 24 percent in 2019. And imposing measures uh, intended to prevent births within the group fits within the legally recognized definition of genocide. But it doesn't matter because... Movies are being made, and there is the bottom line. Well, Disney, in other words, worked with regions where genocide is occurring and thanked government departments that are helping to carry it out. He recalled Disney's release of the 1997 movie Kundun, or K-U-N-D-U-N, which uh, revered the Dalai Lama irritating China's communist overlords. Ever since, Disney has been groveling to get back in the good graces of Beijing, all for the cash cow China represents. Upon opening... Um, uh, Disneyland uh, in 2016 in China, Disney's executive chairman, Bob Iger, he gushed that it was the greatest opportunity the company has had uh, since Walt Disney himself brought land in central Florida. Meanwhile, Mulan is perhaps the most shameless example of how China has conquered Hollywood. 
One more thing. Did, uh, did I mention that the actress uh, who plays Mulan supported the brutal police crackdown against pro-democracy demonstrators in Hong Kong? But of course, she would have to if she wants to have a career in movies. It's all about the bottom line. And the question is, is our insatiable desire for entertainment uh, more important than perhaps abstaining from some things for the sake of those who suffer at the hands of Chinese officials and uh, overlooked by Hollywood moguls? Something to think about. Well, tomorrow, of course, is the anniversary of September 11th, 2001. We lost many Americans on that day. Some of them were in the buildings that toppled. Some were in and around the area. But there were also first responders, those who ran toward the danger to try to save as many as they could. We're going to spend a little time tomorrow remembering those who made the ultimate sacrifice, who lost their lives in uh, the melee that followed. So I hope you will join us uh, for that. It will be a more serious program than we typically do on a uh, Friday afternoon, but I hope you'll, uh, you'll join us as we remember those we've lost, those who served well, and those who still suffer as a consequence of the events of September 11th, 2001. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.